language and as usual you will find spoilers for all six movies being discussed. My name is Larry Parsons, I'm your host and Random Canadian and I really appreciate you listening to my podcast. You'd be doing me a favor if you spread the word. You can find the podcast on Facebook, you can find it on iTunes, it's on Stitcher and if you'd like to send feedback you can do that by writing me at rankinreview at gmail.com that's R-A-N-K-N R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com Well, that's enough for the time being. Let's all nestle in for some games of fate. I would like to welcome Paxton Francis back to the podcast. And we're doing Games of Fate. And you were a philosophy major, so what I'm looking for here... Uh, on your your third, I guess, sort of third appearance. I mean, you were in the Star Wars episode, but you didn't have the whole whole episode. That That's time. true. But I so your third, like, full episode, episode, anyway. All I'm going to ask of you is the answers to life, the universe, and everything. And I did read Hitchhiker's Guide, so I know that the mice fucked up the math, but do we truly have free will? <laughs> is everything before us pre you know, predisposed, no matter what choice we think we make spontaneously, is it just a chemical reaction in the brain that would have happened regardless of anything? Like, is this just a fucking sham that we were existing through? (laughs) Well, I wish I could promise everybody an answer to that. (laughs) That's not too much to ask. I don't think there's one forthcoming, but maybe I shouldn't say that right up front here. You can cut that, right? There will be an answer to that question of whether we have free will. (laughs) We cracked the code while working on this podcast. Uh, you know, people have been trying to figure that one out for a very long time. I think that there's, I mean, th- this is a closer to almost like Twilight Zone episodes for the most part of this, and they're like, 
games of fate is what we're calling the episodes, but um, I think that theme is relevant through most of these stories. Like, what are you in control of? What can you take control of in certain circumstances? If you were given the chance to change or, or pick a different path, would you and why? Um, <laughs> Lawrence Kasdan did a movie called Grand Canyon where uh, Steve Martin's character memorably says all of life's riddles are answered in the movies. <laughs> so... These six movies are going to help us answer whether or not we truly have, you know, free will, or whether or not the cosmos is laid out before us. Answer guaranteed. That's, that's all Larry Parsons' get promise. To, we get to. We'll sit through it, maybe we'll come back to it at the end of the podcast. Is existence we'll predestined? Yeah. Larry has the answer. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping to. I'm hoping to. I hope we find it, too. I was going to ask, oh. do, if you remember why you chose this list, if there was a particular title that jumped out, or if there was... Uh, well... Yeah, there is. And that was mainly that I wanted to talk about Groundhog Day. Nice. You know, when I looked at, at that list of movies. But there, part of it was that there was a movie on there. When I was looking through the list of movies, you had just days or weeks before mentioned knowing in right. a conversation. And uh, I spotted that on the list, saw Cube, which is an interesting film, and there's a lot to say about Yeah. And thought maybe that's the next one for me. I wanted to do something that was a little bit closer to... Uh, the horror genre, or at least a genre film closer to what this podcast is rooted in. Right? I think because everything I've done so far has been a special episode, a war episode, a Star Wars episode, a sci-fi episode. None of them have been straight on. Yeah, sort of. You know, we've got Groundhog Day, but they're at least rooted in a in a uh, theme a little bit closer to what this podcast. There's a fantastical with. element. To That's all of right. This. They're That's absolutely. Right. Is. They're more supernatural. And I would argue, even though Groundhog Day is, you know. A romantic comedy unabashedly that there is like a sinister side to that story there is something strangely terrifying mm-hmm. of being forced to relive the same day over and over again anyway sorry like we like Vaxon was saying the six movies that we are going to discuss uh cult canadian item cube uh 97 yeah 97 was when it was made and it sort of as a slow burn kind of had a rollout around the world and uh there's the nerddom is a little divided on it and i understand the division but we're going to talk about cube uh the it'll be fun to talk about the already discussed groundhog day starring the bill the bill <laughs> um from alex proyas controversial director he just uh, did this movie gods of egypt that got so critically lambasted that uh he went like on the record saying that People like you and I that talk about movies critically are these fucking scumbags that don't deserve to live on Earth. So feel free to take the gloves off if you want to on knowing. I don't know if I'll do that. The last, not the last time, I think it was maybe my first time on your podcast. Was that the first one? The sci-fi. The sci-fi? Yeah. When, when we really were not very nice to iRobot I Robot by Alex Proyas. But so. I remind you, he did do Dark City. Like... And that's a good movie. I would hesitate to call this uh, show critical all that often. It's (laughs) rare that I don't hear mostly love coming from... I try to be balanced that every now and then a Godzilla or a Dreamcatcher will come along and I will lose my composure. Or the prequels. (laughs) I kind of got carried away there with The Phantom Menace. A recent uh, Tom Cruise science fiction action picture called, depending on when you saw it, either The Edge of Tomorrow or Live, Die, Repeat. So there's that. Um, One of those is a better title, and I don't even need to tell your listeners which that is. uh, A fantastical thriller called The Cooler and a Canadian-made 
beginning of the big franchise, The Final Destination, where death comes calling. Is there anything else you'd like to say by way of introduction before we jump into this episode of Rank and Review? No, if I think of anything, I'll just beat myself up later. Let's do it. Let's get going. A cube. 26 rooms high. 26 rooms across. 17,576 rooms. Anybody remember how they got here? Why would they throw innocent people in here? Are we being punished? There's a way in here, so there's got to be a way out. Do you think they'd go to all the trouble to build this thing if we could just walk out? Take a good long look around. Cause I got feelings looking at us. We have about three days without food and water before we're too weak to move. I just want to wake up. I looked in the room down there and something almost cut my head off. Motion detectors integrated into the walls. Tough to spot. So the podcast is an opportunity to learn about each other. Uh, surprise <laughs> to note, I've always had an interest in genre cinema, and I do have a lot of respect for Canadian filmmakers. And especially in recent years, I've had I've had more than a passing interest in Canadian independent genre cinema. And one of the true rags to riches heroic stories. <laughs> that Canada has to offer for that, that doesn't have the name Cronenberg attached to it anyway, is Cube. Cube. Um, Vincenzo Natale is a uh, Canadian filmmaker, and I'm sure that... I, I don't know this, but I have to believe at some point he's, someone's tried to lure him to the excited states. But he has doggedly stayed in Canada and made his movies. I don't love all of them. And they, much like Cube, usually have really cool parts to them and really strange parts to them. And, you know, the give and take of independent Canadian cinema. I haven't seen any of his other movies, but we did take a peek. Yeah. Splice is a particularly interesting one with Sarah Polly and Adrian Brody inventing a new life form by combining human DNA and their gooey science. Mm. Um, well, there's certainly a lot in Cube that... Uh, you know, there's enough there for me to say I would be surprised if nobody tried to yeah. lure him to the States. Yeah. So I have respect for the director, and I realize, you know, I bring my own baggage to this. I might, I might be at risk of overhyping Cube to somebody, because I don't want to necessarily oversell the movie, but I would want to encourage anybody who's listening to this podcast who likes genre movies and who hasn't seen Cube to give it its day in court, because I think it earns at least that. You're not going to have pushback from me on <laughs> Cube is an eminently watchable movie, yeah. and there's uh, there's a lot there to appreciate, even if just on the level of, like, wow, this movie got made. Yeah. Um, and it is a high-concept science fiction piece. A bunch of strangers wake up in a cube room full of look like bank vault doors, and they... Strange color-coded rooms, each a copy of, of the, the yeah. next... So laden with traps. Basically, traps. from a set perspective, they had two of these rooms that they could move from one place to another, but they basically were redressing the same sets over and over and over again. And the, the machine or whatever, this alien box that they're in, is moving. They're clearly on a, on a clock. It's a puzzle that they need to solve. These strangers thrown together, a la Night of the Living Dead, as you correctly pointed out when we were talking about it earlier, have so. to work together to survive this crisis. And in typical psychological, you know, Twilight Zone ways, they 
more fail at doing that than succeed. <laughs> In a pretty big way, yeah, for the most part. Yeah, so, yeah, that's where we started in Cube. Yes. <laughs> Cube is a movie that I saw with you two decades ago when it was <laughs> new on video. Yep. We have a long history with Cube. On I Glorious had, VHS. On Glorious, Glorious VHS. I had not seen Cube probably since the late 90s. I don't. Th- I watched it several times at that point when it was fairly new, yeah. and I don't think I'd touched it, even though I'm pretty sure I have a copy on VHS somewhere. Uh, truth be told, I got my hands on a digital copy in high def, so this is my first time seeing it in close to film quality, and that was kind of cool. I'm not sure if it added to the movie or took away from it, uh, because it did make some of the effects less believable, and mm-hmm. some of the digital effects in the movie... Uh, didn't even look great at the time. The the swords that shoot out of the walls at one point yeah. are sort of like on par with some of the effects in in uh, the Lynch Dune. Yeah, right. That, and which is and that movie years is older. Yeah, much almost older. Fifteen yeah. years older than Cube. But again, they're working with a limited budget, and Very you'll find limited. I'm quite forgiving of stuff like mm-hmm. this. I will definitely forgive uh, a wonky special effect if I'm engaged by the characters in the story, and for the most part, I am. For me, it's not the concept; it's not even the story. Even though there are archetypical characters, definitely by design, there are yeah. very specific characters there for a reason. Yeah, but they're almost set up built-in obstacles for them to get around. But the acting is wonky. Yes. I can't sugarcoat it. You said it. you can forgive a lot of things in an independent movie, uh, or in, and in such a cheaply made sort of like heroic uh, movie making sense. But there are problems in Cube that are unforgivable, yeah. and one of them is the performance that we get out of our lead yeah. actor, do who we have is his name? <laughs> uh, we do have his name. Uh, his name is uh, Quentin. Is Maurice Dean Wint. Yeah, I remember when we first saw it, we always joked, this is, anybody not from Canada can check out for the next 40 seconds or so. <laughs> but uh, I always joked that he was like Hal Johnson from Body Break. Like this Body dark Break. <laughs> yep. Uh, so instead of teaching us about how to stay healthy and do exercises at the office. He was trapped in a cube. He's trapped in a cube and completely falls apart. See, now the same actor plays basically the same uh, archetype in an episode of Twitch City when yeah. cats have taken over the world. And he's perfect for that role because he's a cartoon. Yeah, he's way he's over the top. Ridiculous cartoon. And and we see him go from protective cop to he, there's a certain Night of the Living Dead ring to him too. Uh, to like he tries to rape Summer. All of he, a sudden, like, that all of a seems sudden, to come out of there's nowhere. this domestic abuse thing that happens, and he takes his thing off. He's literally wearing a wife beater and, yeah. and hitting her and throwing her around. I don't know, his character, there are problems with his character even on a script level, Yeah. but they are amplified to the nth degree by the fact that the guy is out of control. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody needed to reel that performance in. It was supposed to be a big reveal that this guy turns out to be an obstacle and not the heroic figure. And to its credit, in when it came out, we hadn't seen this a lot, this bait-and-switch thing, or at least not as much. Mm-hmm. It certainly wasn't breaking new ground, but it wasn't something that we would have necessarily anticipated if an actual actor had taken the role. I'm mm-hmm. sorry to be so mean about it. Uh, another well, soft... imagine the movie, even if they just replaced him with, say, Tony Todd. Yeah. Even Tony Todd. He would have killed it. <laughs> and I think this movie would have been fine. Yeah. Yeah. It is fine. Like, I, I don't want to be too negative about Q. Like, so many of the times I've been on this podcast, 
there's not a movie of the six that I would say is awful. Yeah, so no, and it is worth watching. I'll preface anything negative I say about Cube with that. The other sort of story archetype, and I talked about it recently on my Stephen King episode, is this autistic savant character, which is not to Kazan? say that... Was Kazan, that his name? Kazan, yeah, that's according Kazan, to Wikipedia. Kazan? Kazan? Uh, but it, I, I totally realized that there are autistic people who are amazingly gifted at math and numbers. It's not that it's not a credible plot device necessarily. It's to me just that it's a tired one. Again, maybe less so in 97, but certainly, yeah. Well, savant abilities in somebody, as profound as being able to figure out how many factors these huge numbers have in an instant, right? Problems that supercomputers crunch on for ages. Yeah. That kind of, if, if that kind of Rain Man to the 10th power stuff is real, it's very rare. And yeah. while it's true that somebody as profoundly autistic as that character uh, would very likely have hyper-focused interests and w there would be certain things that he was really Adapted. good at compared to his other abilities, I found it entirely not easy to believe, entirely unbelievable <laughs> that, uh, that he would be able to do that kind of math. Now, maybe I'm, even after working with autistic people for years, uh, a number of years anyway, uh, maybe I'm naive about that. Maybe it's yeah. more common than I've, than I'm aware of. But it struck me as like, part of it is 20 years later, we've seen that trick yeah. a number of times. I uh, think that the actor does as well as he can, but he's been served a really difficult meal. Um, and again, I have it just personally tend to, tends to rub me the wrong way. And the first time I watched Cube, I would not have mentioned it probably at all, but here I am. <laughs> While we're on the subject of his character, uh, I found it interesting how inhumanely almost everybody treats him, particularly our main character, and how quickly watching that movie uh, you're turned off from the, the cop character. Quentin yeah. so quickly because because as soon as the kid shows up Quentin's awful to him yeah I think he even drops an R-bomb on him and calls him a retard yeah uh, very early in it, it, after he shows up in the movie and the difference in just societal norms as far as what's said and felt about people with special needs have changed so much between 97 and now yeah I wonder if that affects how the character plays too I remember having the same reaction to the character in 97 as I did now but I noticed it this time I didn't, don't remember coming out of Cube the first time thinking like wow he was really awful to that autistic guy yeah. I remember thinking that guy was a huge ass to everyone and he was Yeah. but he was particularly and that's awful when things to, started to, to tip over he was willing to help these other people because they all had roles to play they could help but this guy was just an obstacle if you touched him he would scream mm -hmm. and uh, you know he wasn't amenable to listen to people when they gave him instructions so he was more uh, an impediment than anything else and that's my other problem with him having the super math genius whiz kid abilities yeah. is that it validates that line of thinking that if he wasn't a whiz kid then he would just be baggage he'd yeah. be dead weight and in a, a, burden, in a real yeah. crisis situation yeah maybe some people are a burden but uh, it just seems to me that it, it might have been more interesting if, if Kazan's contribution could have been something a little bit less than the mathematical key to solving the entire puzzle yeah. right now I know that the show is a spoiler friendly zone right because yeah. everybody knows that but it should be explained that it's re I wanted to mention that it's very late in the movie that the characters come into 
having a very important piece of information, which is they're inside a giant three-dimensional moving Rubik's Cube sort of construction where every few minutes the rooms all shuffle themselves around like a big puzzle. Yeah. And that is one of the most interesting elements of the movie to me, but it's also tied into the, the, the main place where the script of the movie creaks, for me, is... And, and conceptually, they had to make this decision, I suppose, very early on, to just not even try and address why the cube is built. No. What answer would we accept? And the problem, the only big problem in the script, really, uh, other than some, some creaky dialogue here and there, is that that question is more interesting to me than anything that happens in the movie. Are they going to get out? If you're going to leave gonna a live? question out, sometimes you have to leave that kind of thing out of a movie, fine. Yeah. But if that thing you're leaving out is more compelling fodder for a story, who the hell built this cube and why? Is it Quentin's ridiculous idea that some millionaire Mm -hmm. is entertaining himself? And I love her, Helen's reaction to it, Just because it's hilarious. And the only reason... She's the only name I haven't had to check Wikipedia for so far. (laughs) Uh, And it's because... uh, Is it worth who laughs when he finds out her name is Helen and says, you're such a Helen. Right. And it's so true. That actress <laughs> is her name actually Helen. She is such a Helen. Her, it is Helen, right? I hope so. Yeah, Dr. Helen Holloway played by Nikki. Well, she's more of a Helen than a Nikki, I think. <laughs> um, she's one of the strong points in the movie performance-wise, I think. It's true. We haven't mentioned, too, that uh, as they move room to room, those rooms are lethally trapped. The movie opens with a, a, a man desperately crawling into this room, mm-hmm. alarm buzzing, and these wires zipping through him, and he is literally cubed. Mm-hmm. Now I did mention it, but you rarely listen to me when I'm on the podcast. The traps? Yeah, I, I just can't remember all, if we hit the traps. Good. But, that, uh, that's Dyson slice and dice thing that happens in the opening of the movie. I wanted great. to mention that because the first Resident Evil movie outright steals they that just death. Lifted like. And Completely, it's laser beams instead of like wires. Deadly laser. But even the fact that like he st- stands there motionlessly after they pass through him for a second, and then you just see the lines starting to form and bleed, and the way he falls apart, it's almost shot for shot. Mm. So shame on you, Resident Evil. And like two days before we, before I rewatched Cube in preparation for this podcast, I saw an episode of Rick and Morty where Rick's spaceship dices an alien <laughs> yeah. pieces just like cube the line show that was one of the spots where the high def did not do it any hand. favors you can see when the bloodline the blood grid shows up on his shirt you can see that there's no mark in the shirt it's just yeah. a blood effect and then when he actually falls apart into the cubes uh you see what the movie did there it's called cube uh. he's cut into cubes uh, they just—it's so obviously little pieces, like little cubes of latex, and they're—they're they're well made. I appreciate it. I—I I look at it and go, "Oh wow, somebody spent all the time painting the inside of each of those cubes." But you're thinking about the paint. Yeah. You're not thinking about the the gore. That you're to be. And that problem wasn't present on VHS, yeah. but, which is the only way I'd ever seen the movie. Uh, another thing that's more familiar now that was less familiar to me, at least to me when I saw it, was they spent some time in the first 20 minutes on this great French escapist character mm-hmm. who's starting to the figure ranch. shit out and everybody stick with me, I've got this, I, I will get you out of here, I, I've broken out of any prison, right? It's like, thank God our savior is here, and bam he has a very sudden, very extremely violent death. Yeah, they kind of deep sort of, see him. Hey? Yeah, and it sets the stage, like the stakes are huge and life and death is, and, and this 
this badass, he was one of the first people out the game, right? Mm-hmm. And I've seen that a lot since Cube, but I don't remember seeing it a lot before. Well, you know what the movie does really well with that character? Now, first of all, his introduction is one Hilarious. of the more ridiculous things Quentin <laughs> says. Is Quentin's like, this cop is so plugged in that he... You're the Wren. That whole bit is so stupid and unbelievable. But as a a device in the story, I love the Wren, and here's why. Not only does he do that whole Gandalf thing where he shows up and you think, oh, maybe he's going to be safe, and then he's (laughs) insta-dead, and you realize they're all fucked. But then he refucks them at the end of the movie because they find him again and realize they've been moving in circles. circles. And it's at that point, nine-tenths of the way in, that they realize... We've been moving around this whole time, yeah. and then the, the rooms summer are character. As well. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They've been moving and basically walking on a treadmill, right? They're, they would have been better served to just sit in one in room. the room where they started. They, in fact, well, we're just dropping spoilers for that. Doesn't need to be. I shared. was going to bring it up, but yeah. While we're on it, I wanted to jump over to uh, uh, Nic- uh, Nicole DeBoer. Right, uh, the actress who played Summer, who's one of the uh, another she one of the strong out the prime number the thing. Movie. Yeah, she's the math genius, right? Everybody in the box is there. They have because a they have a particular role. skill or purpose, right? And hers is math, and yeah, I just wanted to mention her because she's a, a cult famous actress who's famous basically for this movie and for the final season of Deep Space Nine when she played. Esri Dax, the namesake of one of my two cats, actually, who you guys may have heard meow earlier <laughs> in this podcast. Hey, if you're in the Star Wars universe, whether she gets another gig, she can probably live off of science fiction fairs and shit like that. So, good for her. Canadian actress making well. Yeah, so. but she's really, I think she's, she's strong solid. in the movie. Yeah. And uh, she had a difficult job in Deep Space Nine. She was picking up a character who'd been important and beloved for six years and then was killed and now she's got to be the reincarnation of that character it's tricky yeah but uh deep space nine was one of my maybe my favorite show on tv at the time and it was fun because uh you know to see this canadian actress from cube work her way into and you said you'd forgotten that it was her when you rewatched when i rewatched it i'd forgotten that she was in the movie and then there she was and that character would totally be played by summer glow if that movie were made today (laughs) I'm a broken record when I talk about sci-fi, but the landing is always tricky. And so often they stick to the third act. And I think that Cube is definitely a little bit guilty of that. Mm-hmm. It's not just this, and here's the whole fucking movie, so if you haven't seen it, once again, you were warned. Our one survivor is, of course, the autistic savant. And over and above that, we find out that the puzzle would be solved if they all just kept their heads and stayed in the same room. Eventually a door above them would open and they could just climb out. And I found that really disappointing. I, I really think that it should have been a puzzle that they had to work together to solve. I don't think that they... It's really disappointing, especially in light of the fact that we don't understand the broader context of why the people who built the box and, and kidnapped these folks and stuck them in there yeah. did it so cruelly. What were they trying to prove? What were they trying to test? Was it an experiment? Was it some sort of horrible psychological thing? Not only is it... It's terrible that Kazan's the only guy to get out. The movie closes on him wandering out of the box into the sunlight. And sure, he's out, but now, now, what? now what? Right? Yeah. He dies of exposure in the desert, wherever yeah. the hell they built this giant fucking 500-foot box? Yeah. Anyway, obviously there's a lot to think about with this movie, right? Because we're... And I, I, I know I feel like we've spent a lot of time leaning on some of the 
issues with the movie, mm-hmm. but the imagination and what they accomplished with a minimal production budget. I mean, by independent standards, this was a high-budget movie, but they did a lot with a little. And they did. I think it earns its cult reputation. And even though, if you haven't seen Cube, we've just spoiled it for you, I once again encourage you to find it. I do, too. Uh, I, I'm glad you stopped us, because we were focusing on the problems. Uh, the movie is worth watching, and I feel like every frame of it drips with passion. The yeah. people making the movie were all very happy to be making this movie, including what's-his-name, who played Quentin, whom yeah. we, we dropped his name earlier, I can't think of it now, uh, who his main sin was maybe carrying too much, a little bit too much passion. He was hugely over-the-top. Really, if you dial back his performance, every almost every other problem in the movie is... Would fall in line would in fall, a lot of ways. Place. I, there's still some bad lines in the script, and there's still some wonkiness to it, but high concept, low budget, I'm... I, I'm not wagging my finger. Yeah, you're the Wren. That whole scene, is that that's a problem no matter who's delivering that bit of, of plot device. It, it makes no sense. But but uh, the movie's really imaginative. It's, it's as pure as science fiction gets in yeah. movies. And I have to appreciate it on that level because I'm a sci-fi guy. And so many sci-fi movies are just fantasies set in space. Yeah. And this is a hard sci-fi movie. But like so many hard sci-fi movies, it stops short of where the sci-fi book would go, yeah. which is who built the cube? Yeah. Why are they in it? But it's this horrible uh, place that's terrifying, and it works. And I like that part of the movie, the submarine yeah. trapped in the cube part of the movie, but there's another part of this movie that remains to be made. And I, I, don't, I haven't seen Cube 2, Hypercube, and I don't know if they get into it in the, in the sequels, which by all accounts are somewhat diminishing. Oh, there are sequels. There I are was sequels. speaking just euphemistically. Yeah, yeah. There are a couple of sequels. I think two, but it could be. There might be even three. I'm not sure. I have not seen them. They're something, not easy to get your hands to, like my, most things Canadian made. Something in my tummy is telling me that I'm better off not yeah. watching Cube <laughs> 2, 3, and however many more there are. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that day will come on. Is like Cube Three called Cube Cubed? Like, is the three <laughs> up in superscript? If it the, isn't, it should have been. Would be? Okay. Good enough. Groundhog time. A thousand people freezing their butts off, waiting to worship a rat. Weatherman Phil Connors is spending the day in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania. Phil, mad. Man, Ryerson, I did the whistling belly button trick at the high school talent show. Bing! Bing! But Phil's about to find out. He's not just stuck in Puxatawney. Will you be checking out today, Mr. Connors? Chance of departure today, 100%. He's stuck... In Groundhog Day. I'm reliving the same day over and over. Phil! Ned Ryerson. Do you ever have deja vu, Mrs. Lancaster? I don't think so, but I could check with the kitchen. Well, it's Groundhog Day. Again? So, I guess a case could be made that there's a couple of titles that are odd ones out in this list. But I think the weirdest sort of wild card is, why why, why is Groundhog Day here? Why are we talking about a Bill Murray romantic comedy? Well, first of all, I love the Bill. I realize that he can be a prickly customer in the real world. But on screen, I mean, I, I rarely have complaints about Bill Murray, and I don't think you'll find an exception here in Groundhog Day. Uh, it's a very beloved film, and I think for, for a good reason. It's also the sort of 
ground zero for the falling out between Harold Ramis and Bill Murray, which mm. is really sad. I honestly think that there was no Ghostbusters 3, and Bill Murray wasn't interested in participating in any form of Ghostbusters until Harold Ramis died because of a difference of opinion over Groundhog's Day. And uh, there's strong feelings about this movie. Even though it's considered by pretty much everybody I know of as a total classic, yeah. Bill Murray is disappointed because he wanted this fucker to be dark. So what? I guess my question to start is, what is Groundhog Day doing on this list? And is it is it truly a romantic comedy, or is there something darker well, and bigger it, going it, on? It's a it's a romantic comedy, but there's a lot more buried in this movie than rom com. It's not even buried; it's yeah. just right there under the surface. The the viewers not expected to go very deep into the movie before they realize there's more to this than just, you know, will he get Andy McDowell at yeah. the end, right? Um, it's interesting that that Murray's beef is that Ramis lightened it up too much for mass consumption because the reason it's such a cult-celebrated phenomenon still to this day, one of the reasons so many people love it, is the darkness underlying the story, is the fact that there's this horrific element, this purgatory-like situation. Uh, and First of all, anybody who doesn't already know the plot of Groundhog Day, don't throw away this podcast, but pause it. <laughs> and just watch And go watch movie. Groundhog Day. <laughs> you know, there's it's not going to be hard to I don't find. mind spoiling, but this is a movie that you don't want spoiled. Yeah. So go away and come back because, you know, we have lots to say. But see the movie. It, so we probably don't need to dive too far into the plot, right? But uh, there is a meteorologist the named Phil trapped. is reliving this Groundhog's Day in Puxatawney, this small town which he initially hates. Yeah, and he is forced to relive this day over and over and over again. The first twenty minutes or so of the movie is a fairly detailed accounting of his first day. Mm -hmm. So we peripherally get to know the characters that we are going to consequently see. Again and again and Correct. again. And we get to know them in drips and drabs over yeah. the course of the movie through his interactions with them. The function of the plot is, is a tricky one uh, to sustain because of the nature of the rep repetition. You know, you, you can wear an audience out. Another movie we're going to talk about later that Live, Die, Repeat uh, handles this problem in a pretty clever way as well. But mm -hmm. as the days drip by, we'll only see seconds of each individual day at a time. Sometimes we'll skip weeks, months, years. We're not one, sure. One of the great There's debates debate even yeah. among the filmmakers as to how long Bill Murray's trapped in yeah. Groundhog Day. My guess is that Bill Murray didn't like the idea that the way to get out of this was to, you know, find true love. He liked the idea of it being, you know, more of a personal journey and that the romantic thing should have been in the background and that the scary sort of Twilight Zone thing should have been in the front mm. and that, uh, as far as he's concerned, Ramus got it wrong. Well, I don't know that I haven't personally spoken to Bill Murray, so I'm totally pulling that shit out of the air. But Far be it from me to, you know... I, Bill Murray's in the bloody movie, but yeah. his opinion is pretty dang valid next mm. to mine. Yeah. I, I can't say I agree with him that Ramis got it wrong. Right? I kind of like the fact that the deeper meaning of this movie is tucked behind a rather innocent-looking romantic comedy story. More people watch this movie because it was made more palatable to the masses. And Absolutely. I don't think you'll hear me saying that in a positive way a lot in the podcast, but I'll definitely say that about... This is not an easy meal to feed somebody. Mm -hmm. So package it in a, as a romantic comedy. And people will come out thinking. They strike a pretty good level, too. It's tricky to make us... I mean, Phil is this flawed character. We, it's not explicitly said, but it's understood 
by the audience and eventually I think by Phil, at least in the way the movie is, is cut, that he kind of has to get this day right in order to unlock things. He has to live this day. Perfectly. Basically. <laughs> yeah. He has to live this day right. Maybe there is no exact perfect way right. to do it, but he's clearly not getting it right because he's doing it over and over. He tries everything. Yeah. And he gets to know every breath taken by every person, right? We were talking about, we were just guessing about how long you would have to be there to memorize each gust of wind yeah and memorize and he learned to play musical piano. instruments uh, and etc etc i think now, he learns a language doesn't he he speaks french or something uh, at one maybe point maybe several yeah yeah and he he role plays characters he uh knows the intimate secrets and life story of every single individual of that town <laughs> yeah. uh ramus apparently we were reading that at one point he said that it might span ten thousand years that phil is is trapped in Punxsutawney. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, revised that to be a more real-world estimate of 10 years. He seems to have such intimate knowledge of everybody's thoughts and what they say and do that he's been there long enough to become a demigod, yeah. right? Like, he, he is plugged into that day. Um, so it's interesting that he got there before going crazy, because how long would a human being be able to stay sane and... I imagine there were some interesting discussions between what's his name, uh, Danny Rubin, who co-wrote it with Ramus, between the two of them about yeah. what happens first. You go insane and blow your brains out. Well, yes, you do, because then you just wake up on Groundhog Day. Well, this is where we get to how deep this movie can really end up right. being. Even this fluffy Bill Murray unfriend, you know, that he doesn't like, Phil. You get to the point where you're living the quote-unquote ideal American life or whatever, where you got the 9-to-5 job, and you're in your cubicle from 9-to-4 every day. One day does become just like the last, the last, and you are kind of reliving the same day over and over again. And that's why all of a sudden, when you bump into a friend of yours, you can't believe that it's been six weeks since you've seen him, because your head's been down in the sand. Yep. Basically, he's been slapped out of that malaise. He's aware of it now. And all of a sudden, being aware that he's living the same day forces him to change. Yep. And without being cosmically forced, he wouldn't. No, he, he would wouldn't. just remain this dick. <laughs> he's yep. kind of an amusing dick, by the way, in the way <laughs> Bill Murray can only do. Only but he's, do it. he is an asshole. In the, in, it's a fine line to walk in that he's an asshole of a character, but we still find him sort of charming. You know, I don't know who could have done that as well as Bill Murray. And if they now, I don't know if Murray wanted to darken what happened to Phil more, or if Murray wanted to darken Phil. Right. Because if you darken Phil much more than he is, you wouldn't like him anymore. Yeah. And you're It'd right. Be hard they to strike that balance uh, of. Uh, in fact, I was holding my fingers crossed from earlier, uh, in order to say that that they strike a good balance of making Phil irritating, and you can tell that he's uh, sort of broken individual he's got some issues right uh but you still like phil enough yeah. to want him to get out of groundhog day right but would that the cosmos lock all of us in our day of indecision and force us to live it over and over again until we got it right the world would probably be a better place if each of us had our our phil experience where we got stuck in a day and the universe just made us straighten out our shit before we were allowed to pass go, right? Well, and the flip side of the, the Phil perspective is Puxatani itself. I think they do a really great job of this being a, quote, sort of charming town, but that fine line between small town quaint and, like, super toxic, mm -hmm. where it's, like, it's fun place to visit, well, <laughs> but if you can't right? Because Punxsutawney is where 
like it's not just a small town. It's where it's the, the official Groundhog, Groundhog, Groundhog lives, yeah. right? But Punxsutawney is in the festival a stand-in for every town in America, right? Right. All of America looks to to that town, and so. Punxsutawney itself is like every town USA. They might as well call it that. At least that's how I think of it. I've never been to Punxsutawney, so I can't know. The movie, maybe it's because of how much I like the charming elements of the movie. I do not always like Andy McDowell. Right. I really like Andy McDowell in in this movie, and I kind of enjoy the 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 datey stuff between them. The the romance between the two of them is is nice, and I don't often even sit, like sitting through that kind of thing in a movie because it's usually not done very well. There usually isn't believable chemistry between the two characters. Yeah. I dig that neither Bill Murray nor... Uh, uh, I just said her name. Andy McDowell. Andy McDowell. Are, neither of them are... You know, they're both handsome enough people, but also neither of them are supermodels. They're, yeah. they're both... Well, to be fair, Andy McDowell was people. a supermodel. Andy McDowell was a supermodel, but... But she's not a, a 21-year-old ingenue, right. I guess is what I'm saying. She's a believable-looking woman. It's not, say, she's Bill Murray, but Scarlett Johansson. Exactly. She's not all Hollywoody slutted up. She's a believable, attractive woman. She's mm-hmm. obviously supposed to be uh, sort of halfway out of, out of Phil's league yeah. <laughs> kind of thing until he... Well, she's well out of his league until he straightens out his stuff. Right? She's earnestly and regularly nice in the same way that Phil is earnestly and regularly shitty. No matter how shitty Phil is, she still smiles and puts up with it and is generally good-natured, in a way, like almost a doormat, really. (laughs) But, you know, she's producing the show, and there's the talent, and, you know, (laughs) she's doing her job. Uh, It it would be a hard walk for him to get from where he starts to where he ends up with her, and that's the whole point. I think it's actually important that the movie feels like a rom-com when you sit down to watch it, and here's why. Phil looks at the problems in his life as how do I get the Andy McDowell of the day to like me, right? And how do I solve that problem? How do I, at the end of the day, have the woman I want in my bedroom with me, right? (laughs) And the answer to that problem is you're solving the wrong problem. The answer is fix yourself. And then the happy bit with Andy McDowell is an addendum. And that the, that sort of trickery doesn't function as well if it, if you go in as a sort of lost in translation. This is a dark, moody kind of. No, this is a romantic comedy. Is he going to get Andy McDowell? Oh, that's actually not the story. That's not the important thing for Phil to do. It has, she's a tertiary element, really. Yeah. To kick open one of the other endless doors of this repeating day, he said that it's amazing. It didn't drive him crazy. Who's to say it didn't? He does commit suicide does. several times, and who's to say he didn't have several months just laying in bed drooling? But it doesn't matter, because at the end of the day, he, he wakes still up. wakes up in no that same what. fucking bed. Like, there's genuine horror to that. Like, yeah, like he, he cannot to... even end his life. And he can't leave. Yeah. Right? He, uh, he has to solve it. He's got to solve it. He's forced. And uh, it really does beg the question of how, you know, what, what would a person do how long would it take a person to conquer their their like, deepest shit if you if the universe held a gun to your head i'm sure it, it would be to fill a couple centuries i think at least that's what uh um Ru- uh ruben is that what his name is co-writer uh yes no 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 yeah danny ruben i was thinking dave ruben but he's the interviewer but danny ruben um he said 
about 100 years. He right. thinks it, that Phil was there. And but Ramus vacillated between 10 years and 10,000. But so. unlike when we're talking with Cube, it doesn't bother me that they don't conclusively tell us that. I, in fact, I think it's kind of fun to do the math. You know? And thank you for bringing me back to that, because uh, I'd forgotten to and I wanted to mention it. It's a perfect example. What I said about Cube was that that extra thing that you don't address can't be more interesting than what you address. Right. In this movie, how and why Bill Murray is stuck in Groundhog Day, did God do it, did, did the mice do it? And Why was he selected? <laughs> exactly. That's not as interesting as Phil himself, and Phil facing this conundrum is more compelling somehow than than uh, getting out of the cube is compared to who built the cube. Yeah. It's that's why this will remain a classic because it's the rom-com that gets you to talk about endless philosophical things, you know. Mm-hmm. It's a deep movie and it doesn't look like it. Well, here I'll put it this way. You mentioned that I was a philosophy student once upon a time and that's true. And the philosophy club used to do movie night. They probably still do and I remember being intrigued. Uh, I had already seen Groundhog Day, but I'd never thought of it deeply. In that context, yeah. Uh, But yeah, it was on the poster for the the Philosophy Club movie nights right alongside movies like Blade Runner. And then, boom, Groundhog Day. And you go, huh. Watch it again with that thought in mind. And there is so much going on in Groundhog Day that's easy to miss. And I like that. It's delightful to me when you bury such a great thing inside... It, it, and the rest of it is pleasant. It's yeah. not hidden in there. It's just, it's just there, and presented I mean, to us like a pearl in a clam. From the same creative pool that brought us Stripes too, it was a pretty bold step forward. You got to say, for the time this came out, this was a very high concept comedy, and uh, I often give a hard time to romantic comedies. So it's really refreshing for me to say on rank and review for the record, here's a rom com that I'm one hundred percent behind. Well, I know you love Ghostbusters. I do. And you know I love Ghostbusters. I love <laughs> yeah. some Ghostbusters. And screening it in my backyard was awesome. Yep. That was fantastic. Uh, but I would be hard-pressed if you took out some pliers and told me you were going to pull my teeth unless I could pick my favorite Harold Ramis movie. Mm. Well, I've been right between directed Ghostbusters it. and, and uh, as far as scripts go, right, right. Uh, between Groundhog Day and Ghostbusters. Right. I, I would have a hard time choosing which is a better story it's those types of thoughts that keep me up at night it's those types of thoughts that created this podcast (laughs) that you're listening to is there anything else you want to say about Groundhog Day probably (laughs) we could just spend a fucking episode let's cut it there if I think of something super important I'll hack into your podcast website and plan something throw it into the into the ranks what are you doing with this you weren't supposed to bring this home it belongs to the school but maybe it means something Like a math puzzle or something. Stay with me. I know how this sounds. But I've matched these numbers to the dates of every major global disaster for the last 50 years in perfect sequence. Earthquakes, fires, tsunamis. The next number on the chain predicts that tomorrow, somewhere on the planet, 81 people are going to die in some kind of tragedy. So we've talked about Alex Perez before, as you mentioned in the introduction, and... He's one of these directors that I want to be a huge fan of because I actually do think, especially visually... Dark City. He's an amazing director, and Dark City is a special piece of science fiction. No matter what else fiction. he does, Dark City will always be excellent. Yeah, and uh, he, like I said in the introduction, he's just thrown a tantrum against critics after the dismal reception of his most recent film, which I'm not going to speak to, I haven't seen, but mm-hmm. by all accounts, not super good. <laughs> um, 
but like I said, I, I appreciate his ambition. Uh, this movie got very, very mixed reviews, but one of its few great defenders was the late, great Roger Ebert. He basically said that this is his second sci-fi masterpiece. Mm. Whereas, I'm not going to say this is a sci-fi masterpiece. I am going to defend knowing more than a lot of people do, because I so respect the ambition of the movie, and I really respect that they held a very big secret in the movie out of the whole campaign. This was the age where movies like 2012 and The Day After Tomorrow and huge disaster movies were very, very popular. And the fact that this movie is about the end of the world... And doesn't play that card in the trailer. Is, and it's not present anywhere. They, they hit us with that within the plot of the movie. And when I first saw the movie, I was genuinely surprised <laughs> that that's where the movie was going, you know? It's set up to be this adventure, sort of sci-fi adventure tale, where Nicolas Cage is trying to protect his son from unknown forces. His son opens a time capsule at his school and gets this page full of strange, scratched-out numbers. Creepy messages. Yeah, and... Uh, he happens to notice, look, he's, he's, you know, just curious guy, uh, that one of the numbers strings out to happen to be the dates for 9-11. The date and the body count. And the amount right? of people who died. And from that, he starts extrapolating that these numbers are not random at all, and that they're predicting catastrophes. And this gets and confirmed. And there are not very many left. And there, there is an end point to this list. And what the fuck is that supposed to mean? Um... There's a, a movie that he, your brother and I are quite fond of, actually, called Timescape mm. with Jeff Daniels, which is, it kind of reminds me of this premise where he realizes that he's being visited by time travelers who like to go to places of famous catastrophes, mm. which leads him to wonder, what the fuck are they yeah. doing in my town? What's going on? <laughs> right? So on top of him figuring out what this map means, his son is being stalked or haunted by these really Strange creepy people. Dudes, yeah. And uh, so he's got a lot of things to deal with. And for me, the problem with it, my problems with knowing has to do with that sort of angle of the spooky men following the kids. And the fact that even though I have defended Nick Cage in the past, he is sleepwalking through yeah, this movie. he's not there. And it's he? unfortunate, because I think if he brought his A-game, this might be the movie that Roger Ebert seemed to think it was. <laughs> it's almost there, which makes it one of those most frustrating sci-fi movies, because it's close to being something really special. Yeah, well, and even just listening to you talk about it conceptually makes a person, makes me go, hmm. I want to watch that movie that Mary's yeah. talking about because that's not really the knowing I watched. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that uh, it, it'll stand or fall on how you feel about Nick Cage to some degrees. If you're not a fan of Nick Cage, this is going to be uh, fuel for that fire. And I agree, this is not a strong performance from him, and that's kind of heartbreaking. Well, I'm a fan of both Nick Cages, right? <laughs> I'm a fan of Nick Cage, the one whom we saw in Leaving Las Vegas and Bringing Out the Dead. Yeah. And a number of movies where Nick Cage is just flabbergastingly good. Adaptation is amazing. amazing. Yeah. And then I'm also a fan of the other Nick Cage, which is, you know, Nick Cage in a gorilla suit sucker punching a woman on YouTube, right? <laughs> like, Nick Cage is a meme of himself now, and I appreciate Nick Cage on both levels. But and this is somewhere is crazy in between. Off the hook it's shit neither too, crazy yeah. off the hook nonsense, nor is it a great performance. He's, he looks legit sleeping. it in. He looks like this is his fourth or fifth consecutive movie shoot, and he needed a little which bit of a breather. It very likely would have been. It's odd. You don't, even in a 
bad movie, you usually feel like Nicolas Cage is there. Like, he is committed to yeah. The Wicker Man. Yeah. And, that, <laughs> yeah. and I don't know why, because there's so much more to work with in knowing, but I feel like Nick Cage was 110% yeah. there. He was on board. In Wicker Man, and maybe like 62% there in knowing. And yeah. it's a shame, because Wicker Man is... Ugh, that movie is poor. So I've, I've been... I was being very like good, nice about the movie, but... Now I must acknowledge some problems. Thank you. When when Nick Cage sort of realizes what the last end of the string of the numbers means as their exact coordinates, the first time he happens to be at the apex of the disaster is not because he figures it out. It's because he literally happens to be there in the middle of a traffic jam. Mm -hmm. And I know the whole movie again, and the, the whole theme yes. of this is games of fate, but... And that it seems is, to be focused on his family. Yeah. So it's not totally illogical outside of the context of the movie. But I would have liked it if he made that theory, are these coordinates, and he put himself there and it actually played out. The like fact, with the subway, where yeah. he was trying to stop He it. was trying to prevent it, yeah, yeah. exactly. And of course no one's going to believe him. And that was a good sequence. That's mm -hmm. a sequence. In the, now, was that in the preview? The crash of the subway yeah. killing the people? Okay. Yeah. So it was really We saw just the, the planes the crashing, part. and we saw like the explosions, yeah. and Nick Cage running. And But the fact that this was going to be a global event, Armageddon thing, was, was help. Yeah, was held like back. when they figure out that, that the final body count that they thought was 33 is actually EE for everyone, everyone else. else. Right, like everyone's going to die. Yeah, and that's where it gets so great for me too because like Nicolas Cage, once he makes that realization, knows that he can't do anything to save himself. But he thinks there's maybe a one chance in a thousand he might be able to save his son. And that's what the movie becomes. And yeah. I fucking love the stakes of that. Yeah. And the, the, it's, it's a powerful scene, even with Nick Cage at 60%, mm -hmm. when he gives his son up to these alien creatures. Well, that's the extra 2%. That gets him to 62 Yeah. <laughs> but I kind of... The alien creatures kind of rub me the wrong way. Well, I, it's I, got I, this... Yeah, it's got an abyss problem, right? Yeah. Where I love... It, it, well, not quite to the level of the abyss, because the abyss is... I love so much of that movie and then it's got the huge problematic ending and that's why the creepy people following his son need to be there right otherwise it's just but they don't need to be Deus Machina when the aliens show up at the end without them yeah. right they don't but need to be not, as terrifying as yeah, they are exactly <laughs> and they feel they stand out like a sore thumb and you can tell why the writer had had to stick them in there as the precursor to the aliens coming and taking the kids away at the yeah. end right and like that's the I like the idea. There's an alien, alien planet has been watching us. They see that the end's coming for us. They can't save the planet, but they save enough people and enough children to reseed human population somewhere else. Mm -hmm. But they're looking for children for whatever reason. Nick Cage is not Nick invited Cage on the boat. Nick Cage is not invited. I just wish he they would have Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, I wish that they would have been closer to Close Encounters in that respect and just left it with the ships leaving because there's this new Eden shot that finishes oh, the, the movie running through the field, running through a field to this big tree of life. Yay! Everyone's dead. And I mean, I I understand them trying to make something nice and glorious and big, considering everybody in the world has died. But that moment didn't feel genuine to me. It was just like, oh no. Yes, they got put to a perfect Eden. They might as well have been delivered to heaven itself, right? <laughs> now, I need to preface the criticism I'm about to lay out with the fact that I had not seen this movie before we uh, 
it was assigned in this podcast, right? right? And I've watched it only once, which is not a position I'm in with many of the movies that we've reviewed together. And it was like eight months ago that I watched it. I think maybe the movie... That being said, I think part of why I don't have passionate feelings one way or the other about knowing is that maybe it bit off more than it can chew, and it failed to do both of the things it was trying to do. It was trying to make a tight little what the hell is going on thriller where Nick Cage is trying to solve this mystery uh, almost like national treasure style thing except without all the dorky (laughs) hopefully significantly less less hokey right which when you're going to into an Alex Proyas movie you're you're hoping it's not going to be too too hokey Uh, and usually isn't Um, but then it also tries to do the end of the world aliens you know close encounters thing and sandwiches them together into one movie that ends up being, for me, it was pretty forgettable. Yeah. I had to read the Coles notes to remind myself of Refreshed what happened it. in the movie, right? Like, we had to sit here for a You're not while. alone. I realize I have a minority opinion. And it, even, like, this is, like, a B-minus review for me. It's not, like, yeah. an enthusiastic thing. But I love the ambition of this movie. I love what this movie is trying to be. Yeah. You know? Well, I enthusiastically beat the shit out of iRobot with you. Yeah. We were and crueler it's so to that much movie than probably we needed to be. But, uh, yeah, and this this movie's not uh, pissing on sacred source material no. the way iRobot did, and that's maybe the big difference. This movie was just trying to tell a story that... Uh, that its greatest sin is maybe that it tried to do too much. And yeah. and the the big problem with the movie is is probably Nick Cage's lackluster performance. Either get Nick Cage on a better day or recast that role and it's like uh it's that frustrating almost. It's but the frustrating almost and it's the frustrating cage, man. Yeah. The Nicholas Cageness of, of the the erratic nature of why is he so good in Lord of War and so mediocre in this movie? Yeah. Why is he better in in National Treasure than he is in this movie. I I should mention before we move on, because we're just about done on this one, I think, right? That I only recently realized that due to a new piece of movie news, which is that (laughs) Nicolas Cage is starring in the new Mario Van Peebles telling of the Indianapolis, Indianapolis, that since I worked worked with Mario Van Peebles once upon a time in Toronto, so I'm now professionally only one degree of separation away from... Nicholas Cage, the greatest living actor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know why that makes me happy, but, but there it is. There it is. Um, I still leave some hope for Alex Proyas. Yes. And I hope the fact that he just laid this huge egg is not going to stifle him from getting another at bat. Because yeah, maybe he's a little bit pretentious, and yeah, he's made some problematic movies. But because he made Dark City, and because I know he's ambitious, and he wants so much to be the guy to give us that next Blade Runner, or give us that next yeah. Aliens, uh, I, I want him to do it. But we we harp on this so much, so I don't want to hit the nail too hard, because the movie's fine. But he maybe needs some adversity. Yeah. He maybe needs someone to say, you know what, we can only afford to either do the end of the world thing or the The solve the mystery thing. (laughs) One or the other, Alex, because Dark City's still by far his best work and it's by far his lowest budget. And maybe, maybe there's a certain George Lucas factor going on where he's got too many toys at hand and I'm going to make a movie that does all of this stuff. And it's just, uh, too much. And it was pretty long too, wasn't it's it? It's two hours. Yeah, uh, two hours. It shouldn't feel as long as it felt, yeah. clocking in at two hours. Yeah. But 
I again, minority opinion. I say give it a, give it its day in court. I know there are people who fucking hate this movie. Well, it, I don't it, hate it. None of these are terrible yeah, movies. It I was on it. some people's worst of lists, and it was on some people's best of lists. Lists, which I think means that at the very least, it's interesting. I, I'm surprised to hear that it's on very many of either of those. Yeah. I, I feel for myself that it's a fairly middle of the road movie. I'm going to tell you a story. At first, it's going to sound ridiculous. But the longer I talk... We have to find the keys. The more rational it's going to appear. I can't believe you found coffee. Sugar, right? Yeah. Hold on. Three. You like three. How many times have we been here? How many times? For me, it's been an eternity. The invasion will fail. We lose everything. I die within five minutes of landing on that beach, along with every other soldier. How did you do that? Come on! Come find me when you wake up! So Paxton, imagine Groundhog's Day if instead of Bill Murray, it was Tom Cruise... And instead of him reliving Poxitani's Groundhog Day Festival, he was reliving basically an alien version of Omaha Beach hmm. over and over and over it again. Sounds familiar to me. I think there's a movie about that, Larry. This is a special effects extravaganza from Doug Lyman, the guy who brought us Go in the first Bourne movie. Uh, he's usually a fairly efficient director. It sort of a lot depends on the script with him, but he's definitely, you know, a talented man. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a movie that I got my hands on for free. I kind of got around to seeing it. I was never particularly amped. Uh, it's just Tom Cruise has been around for so long that there's going to be two or three Tom Cruise action thrillers out every year. And it's just, it gets for me harder and harder to get excited about the next Tom Cruise project. And I would be lying if I didn't say the thing that made me, you know, decide to finally check out Live, Die, Repeat was this premise that we're going to watch Tom Cruise die Die over and over and over again. again. So I didn't come in with a lot of expectations, which is why I'm pleasantly surprised to say that uh, I'm a big fan of this movie. I mean, it's not deep. It's a sort of popcorn extravaganza, and it borrows all of these plot, you know, things blatantly from other movies but as far as being an exciting sci-fi action adventure it works way more than it doesn't so i'm going to give a conditional thumbs up to live conditional repeat. depending on uh, what i say or <laughs> yeah no, for what it is i mean it's just asking what what does this movie want to be well, it wants to be a big action spectacle and i yes. think in a very basic by the numbers way it succeeds in being that i agree i think it also wants to be a, a sort of clever action spectacle it wants to have some interesting plot things going on now you've already grabbed half of my talking points you i'm sorry you're going no that's fine you and i are going to agree a lot on this movie i think uh i wanted to point out that just like you i went into this movie with absolutely no expectations yeah i had not seen a whole lot of the promotional material for the movie going in i knew nothing about it except that tom cruise is is uh, in a robot suit and he's sort of 
dying a bunch. It's Groundhog's right? Day. <laughs> because the movie was, we're going to have to mention it at some point, originally mm-hmm. called Live, Die, Repeat. Or Edge of Tomorrow. Or Edge of Tomorrow, rather. Yeah. And then was changed to Live, Die, Repeat. Correct. I thought it was the other way around. No, it was changed to Live, Die, Repeat for its video release here. I see. Uh, but it was when it was originally released theatrically, it was called Edge of Tomorrow. Well, I was going to say that they stepped away from the better title, but apparently no, they stepped into the better, better title. title. I think Live, Die, Repeat is a, a much stronger title than Edge of Tomorrow. I think that some people believe that that's the reason that uh, it didn't make as much money domestically as it should have. Like, if John Carter was called John Carter of Mars, that would have somehow rescued that movie from box office <laughs> yeah. movie, and it's just some weird suit mask in this studio system. Well, like. <laughs> Live, Die, Repeat was, was in no danger of, of being a huge bust, right? right? The movie was a slow burn, but it did make a bunch of money. It did well enough to get a sequel. So. Yeah, exactly. And it even ended up breaking $100 million domestic, which yeah. just looked up as well. And... Uh, uh, but so I'm pleasantly surprised that the sequel's greenlit and purportedly getting made, yeah. uh, because the movie was to me, you know, really entertaining, and we, you know, we'll talk more about why. Yeah. But one of the reasons I enjoyed it—that's not a criticism of the movie one way or another—so we'll just spit it out—is that it's the first time you and I have watched a movie for the podcast together for the first time. Yeah, neither, neither of us, us had seen it before. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And I haven't seen it since, so I think we're yeah. both talking about this movie after just one, one view. Pass. And Larry and I, uh, you, we, you guys, we <laughs> rarely watch any movies together for the first time unless we go to see theater, it in the theater, yeah. right? So this was a, a fun time sitting down and watching it together. And, and we were rolling the dice. You know? <laughs> we were rolling. Um, the other thing to say, because I can't stop talking about Tom Cruise, <laughs> is that... As a personality, as a celebrity, as the entity of Tom Cruise, he's kind of a very make fun ofable figure. Make like, fun ofable, right? Yes, he is. I mean, there's a better word than that, but that's what I'm going to say. He's very make fun ofable. And here's what I will say Tom Cruise is a decent actor. He sells the premise, I believe the stakes, I believe it when he's scared. And for somebody that I've seen on screen so much, like, I will give him his due credit. Um, maybe he's half crazy or completely crazy in real life. Fully crazy. But he doesn't suck as an actor. No, he doesn't. And Tom Cruise helped this movie. And part of why is that Tom Cruise was in it. So I went in expecting nothing. (laughs) I went in expecting another banal Tom Cruise action movie, which it very easily could have been. But it was smart enough and it moved enough. One thing that Doug Liman can do very well is make a movie that steps forward at an invigorating pace. Go did that in spades, and this movie does that very well. You start into the movie, and you're dropping onto the beach with Tom Cruise. It's exciting enough. I was already with the movie, and then I think you and I both clicked on the movie at the same moment, which is when we realized that he's not the only Billy Pilgrim who's come unstuck in time, right? The plot is that he's reliving the same day, Groundhog Day style, and when I realized that, that the movie was going one level deeper than that and there was someone else and he reaches out and makes contact, and the, the movie just got an extra level of interesting yeah. for me at that point. And I, I remember sitting forward on my seat and going like, okay, it moved the movie's a step going deeper now. than the video game premise. It's like yes. Basically, his every movement on the battlefield, anytime he steps on a mine or sees somebody in the wrong place at the wrong time, Tomorrow he can fix it. But it happened just as I thought that the you know I kind of had the movie figured yeah. out and I'd seen what the movie was going to show me and yeah. the rest was going to be explosions. Emily Blunt. At that sees point, him. the yeah. movie took this other step and the, the the 
pep of the movie kept going. Emily Blunt, who we haven't mentioned yet, sort of playing our badass war hero. She sees him on the battlefield and recognizes what's happening because mm-hmm. it's something that had happened to her. So as she sees her doom coming, she turns to the main character, Tom Cruise, and says, Find, find me, me when tomorrow. you wake up. Yeah, find me when you wake up. And uh, yeah, that's when we get past the video game premise, and now we're going to see, like, that's when the, the video game kicks into plot mode, right? And yeah. now, what are you going to do with this power? Right. I, so unlike Bill Murray, uh, Tom doesn't have to live the same day over alone. and over and become a better person. Yeah. He has to live the same day over and over and become a better soldier and better understand the enemy that they're fighting. Yeah. That's their real value in this effort, is that it turns out they're reliving of the same day is tied into the technology of the aliens they're yeah. fighting right they control time etc cetera, etc cetera. over that sort of sci-fi construct i actually really liked how they handled the action sequence mm. like the aliens are very aggressive they they kind of reminded me of like the sentinels from the matrix but they yeah. were, were living creatures more than robotics obviously. yeah they actually ended up sort of being reminiscent when i saw the wrath tars in the new star wars movie oh like, yes i was like hey that's sort of lived i repeat going on there. yeah oh well I, I see that i totally see that yeah. i the thing that starts the ball rolling is like Tom Cruise's character talks his way into the front lines by, you know, asking a favor of the wrong, <laughs> wrong general. Yeah. And he's basically, like, sentenced to death by being this in- guy who's completely incompetent is thrown into this whirlwind of shit. Mm-hmm. But the first and only alien that he encounters on the original day kills him as he kills it. Yes. And there's this horrifying moment where this blue neon blood sprays on Tom Cruise's face and just fucking melts it. Yeah. <laughs> and oh. because of that specific alien, and that that alien is one of the creatures that has this ability, and because he died covered in that membrane in that material period. or whatever that shit was. He's unstuck in time. That's what, what that... And the same thing presumably happened to Emily Blunt, which is why yeah, she became been, this war hero. It's right? been long enough ago... That mm-hmm. we watched it, that I don't remember clearly if the movie implicitly tells us she got sprayed with alien explosion goop. Yeah, or she if does we mention. Just assumed it. You died. You died on the first day, but you killed this type of alien. And mm-hmm. he said, "Yes." If it was the first time, she was finishing his sentence. Right. So the fact that it happened to him is probably what helped her seal the deal. Yeah. That that had happened to her as well. And instead of having to, that that's right after she, like she sees that that's about to happen. To him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting because instead of being like Bill Murray, he doesn't have to. Con- he has to have one conversation with her every morning, basically, and that. That convinces her. Yeah, we need to train him. He yeah. has my same powers. There's no reason he can. Know. Unlike Tom, we get to skip the, the repetitiveness of that conversation over and over again. Yeah. And unlike Bill Murray, Tom can't skip it. He can't just go hang out with other people that day. He has to go back and convince her yeah. every day. But uh, we talked about the narrative difficulty of having that recycling sort of storyline that goes over and over again. They helped themselves greatly by casting Bill Paxton. <laughs> yes, whom I wanted to get to as well, so thank you. It, I felt like he stepped into the role of Apone from yeah. Aliens. He, 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 he took off his Hudson boots and put on his Apone boots for this movie. Yeah. And uh, he made me wish that he'd been in... Well, I really liked him in this. It, it made me think, man, why couldn't he have been in Avatar playing this character? I might have been less bored through Avatar. <laughs> well, he's almost always a welcome presence. I would say always, but unfortunately I reviewed a little movie called Club Dread. <laughs> but usually Bill Flatpax, <laughs> you know, I'm happy to see you. And he's like, Whether because he's a we vampire see his... or a punk 
yeah. trying to beat up the Terminator. He's always fun. We get to see him go from Alpha to, you know, this whipped little puppy. The first day with Tom Cruise, he's just totally putting him in his place, slapping him around. But when Tom Cruise has the day's resetting on him, he just completely un- undresses him. Yeah. So a scene that could have become tiresome because they cast the right actor, I think, became much more digestible. Yeah, well, he's got some skills. Bill Paxton, is he's good even in a lot of terrible movies. Yeah. I'll defend him in Twister, even. <laughs> For sure. Right? Yeah, that's like, a special effect movie. Those are not easy to be in, man. No. And <laughs> like, it's also not easy to be in a movie directed by somebody who barely speaks English. Yeah. Yann DeBont, who yeah. does not communicate well with his <laughs> actors when they don't... Yeah. Anyhow, we're not here to talk about Twister. Uh, let's jump back to the fact that there's a sequel happening. Okay. We don't know when it's happening. We know that... Uh, um, Doug Lyman is supposedly returning. Yeah, and uh, what's his name? The, the uh, who wrote this first one, Christopher uh, McQuarrie. McQuarrie, yeah, is not writing the second one. Okay, but yeah. I'm assuming Tom Cruise and uh, and what's her name, the uh, the female lead. You said her name Emily four Blunt. times already. Emily Blunt. Yeah, are they won't be doing it again without them? I, I, I would I would assume at the very least we'll get Tom Cruise back. That'll be complicated to get her back, yeah. won't it? It's hard to say. It's hard to say. Who knows? Maybe they were anticipating it on being bigger. They might have signed sequel. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. The movie seems to have just sort of slipped into existence, though. It slipped through the the marketing mesh of... It it just blended in with a a lot of other sci-fi movies and action movies that all look like a bunch of explosions when you see the advertisements. But there was more going on in this movie than yeah. just a bunch of explosions. In the same way, Groundhog's Day isn't just a romantic comedy. This just isn't just a popcorn action movie. Right. I would say that Groundhog's Day is still a much better movie of the two. I would, but, uh, I would agree. But I, I, I was surprised by this movie. And if nothing else, it accomplished something quite impressive. Because now I'm looking forward to, to a, a Tom, Tom Cruise, Cruise movie. <laughs> which I have mixed feelings about. Right? Like I... I'm not a fan of uh, the Church of Scientology, and I'm not a fan of Tom Cruise for that purpose. And I usually am, I usually have no problem keeping an, a, a creative person, an artist's personal business, out of my appreciation for their art. I can enjoy uh, a Woody Allen movie, yeah, right. But uh, for some reason, I feel a little bit guilty about putting money into Tom Cruise movies because I don't like where his money goes but for me it's less this movie was free so you know you didn't have to pay for it and I got to watch your copy for me it's less about Tom Cruise not getting out of the closet it's it's I don't really particularly care about the Scientology more than you know but all sorts of people believe believe all sorts of crazy shit (laughs) for me it's just I'm worn with use like I said there's been at least two Tom Cruise action thrillers every year since 1988 right <laughs> like i it just it just got hard to get worked up about it so yeah. i think genuinely that it seems like a left-handed compliment but yeah. i i will totally watch the sequel to this movie and absolutely I totally, and i didn't want to derail it onto a whole debate uh i'm just saying i i feel like scientology is a, a predatory mm. cult scam and Tom Cruise is knowingly the mouthpiece for it and has helped David Miscavige sell it, etc., etc. All I'm trying to say is that this movie was entertaining enough that I was able to put that stuff aside, which usually that stuff's enough to make me just not bother with Tom Cruise movies. I wouldn't have watched this movie were it not for for Rank and Review. And so I'm glad, and I'm in the same position as you. I kind of want to see the sequel. (laughs) I want to know what happens next. Good surprise. Watch, uh, Watch it if you haven't. 
Live, die, repeat, or edge of tomorrow, depending on where you are in the world. That's right. Unless you haven't seen Groundhog Day, watch Groundhog Day before you watch this. He's a loser. Hey, Bernie! You want to tell me what's going on out there? We're down almost a mill out there. Doesn't that seem strange to you? She loves me. Should I get her flowers or candy? What is happening to you? Get ready to experience... I love the shock. What is it to love? The year's most improbable love story. You are out of his life. I don't think I can do that. This is our time. This is you and me. William H. Macy. You look in the mirror. You don't like what you see. Look in my eyes. I am the only mirror you're ever gonna need. Maria Bello. You blindsided me. I love you. And Alec Baldwin. The best cooler there ever was, and I need him back. He ain't never coming back. That is a dead man talking. So I said there were two movies on the list that kind of stuck out, but it didn't seem like obvious picks necessarily. Right. First one was Groundhog's Day. I would argue the second one is The Cooler. There is definitely a fantastical element to this movie, but it's not necessarily as front and center as everything else. That's right. Um, the basic premise is that Alec Baldwin is an old school gangster who runs a casino. And uh, because he's old school, he has in his employee this William H. Macy character, who is a cooler. If there's somebody hitting the tables who's having a good run and the casino's starting to lose money, they have only to just have him stand next to them. And the next time he rolls the dice, shit's going to take a turn. He's a bad luck man. He, he just is. He just... He like there's a vortex of bad luck that follows him everywhere he goes. It's like that right. kid from Charlie Brown's that has a fucking cloud around him, right? Big pen sort of thing. Although he seems to, we don't learn until very late in the movie that he seems to actually be a sort of luck black hole and that he sucks in everyone else's luck and accumulates and <laughs> yeah. uses it all at once. Well, and that's where things do kind of get crazy and supernatural, but for the most part the movie plays things very straight. Right. But the Alec Baldwin character definitely believes in this cooler. He's Adam in his employ. And as an added convenience, William H. Macy had been a compulsive gambler, and most of his wages are being garnished mm -hmm. by Alec Baldwin. Despite right. this, they seem to have a somewhat of a friendly relationship. They, they get along with each other. And uh, a monkey gets thrown into their works on both of their lives. The Alec Baldwin's character has the his own mob bosses that he needs to answer to. And they want this casino to be more profitable. It's turning a profit. It's even turning millions of dollars. But right. they want to play with the big boys. And in order to do that, they're going to make changes. And Alec Baldwin is not amenable to that. So his life is being forced to change, and there's not a lot he can do about it. And we see his struggle with it. And at the same time, that's mirrored by the William H. Macy's character. I think that Alec Baldwin's character meant well by hiring this waitress played by the absolutely fucking gorgeous Maria Bello, <laughs> basically to sleep with him. And uh, this really weird thing happens. Maria Bello legit falls, falls in love for, with William with H. Macy cooler. with the cooler. And it's got devastating consequences because his life starts turning around and consequently his special ability... No longer works. Yeah. And on top of, uh, you know, Alec Baldwin's character trying to fight for the old ways, his casino does start losing money. So that's where we start with this premise of the cooler. It's a and pretty out there premise. Yeah. 
But it's original, and it is. It, it sort is. of seems like it would be an interesting Twilight Zone episode, and mm-hmm. I definitely think it would be. But I guess Twilight my question is: is, is, it, is it an interesting movie? <laughs> certainly an interesting movie. It, it, tonally and uh, setting-wise, material-wise, it uh, reminds me a great deal of another movie that I like very, very much, which is a little movie called Heart Eight. Right. Uh, but it's sort of like what if there were a Twilight Zone episode inside of Heart Eight? Yeah. I suppose. <laughs> would be a, a way to describe this movie. I liked it. Yeah. Uh, I almost always, invariably, I like William H. Macy. Mm-hmm. He's uh, a charming president. I can't say that I invariably like Alec Baldwin, <laughs> but I like him in this movie. Uh, and I even managed to like his character somewhat, in spite of the fact, and you and I discussed this a little bit earlier, that yeah. his character is, is pretty awful. <laughs> The world that he is nostalgic for is not a good thing. It yeah. reminds me of this it's a sort world of, of broken kneecaps and yeah. uh, and intimidation tactics. And Old whatnot. school hardcore gangsterism, right? That's uh, the, more disguised now, it's, but it's still a, a dog eat dog world. But mm-hmm. yeah, he he is struggling in the face of that. But it reminds me of sort of this. Uh, I don't know, right-wing idealism of, of the 50s. Like, there's this mentality that once upon a time, everybody got along, everybody got paid a living wage, and everything was hunky-dory. And it's bullshit. It doesn't really exist. Just like this idealized version of the casino doesn't really exist. But he's going to fight to the death to keep it that way. And his sort of journey is seeing everything change for the, for the worse. And William H. Macy's journey is seeing everything sort of change, change for, for the, the better. better. Yeah. And the movie makes it easy enough to root for the right guy, <laughs> but uh, but the you know it's it's a it's a nuanced enough performance from Baldwin and a, the characters written sympathetically enough that I I feel a little torn about yeah. that character. What was his name? Shelley. Shelley. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, one of the great things this movie is at is is really getting you angry at certain characters. Shelley yes. definitely does this a few times where you're really fucking mad at Shelley. You kind of, you know, I, in a way, I guess I feel bad. That trajectory does work. He's not going to survive in this world and doesn't. And he sees his empire fall before, you know, he's put down. Shelley, yeah, he's an interesting character. I think Shelley might actually be the most interesting character as far as his own arc, right? It's easier to relate to that than somebody who has this superpower, right? Yeah. I mean, Bill Macy's got this magnet, this luck magnet effect going on, and then his luck changes. Baldwin does a couple, his character, Shelley, does a couple of things, hiring the the woman, first of all. Yeah. And then in the climax of the film, letting him run the table yeah. and pay off his debt and win all this money. And it's interesting that Shelley lets him do that. He's, such, he's a principled enough man that yeah. even though he just wants to rip everything to shreds, he, he knows that uh, that he's losing and lets it happen. Yeah. He's, he's interesting in that regard. He doesn't throw a tantrum and try and and try and take him out anyway. He loses fair and square and swallows his pride. We know he's willing to kill people. We know, like, he beats the Maria Bella character to try to convince her. When she says, no, I can't leave him, I love him. Like, yeah. he brings out the fist. He is, like, uncompromised. He's a piece of shit. He's bad. He is bad. <laughs> like, But when push comes to shove, he could put a bullet in the back of Bill Macy's head. And, and he instead, doesn't. he lets him walk out of his casino with a ton of money. 
And in a way, like, it's the one time he does make a change. Like, the old school Shelley is uncompromising. Somebody says what William H. Macy says to him in his fucking casino. And you're not living another day. Best case scenario, you're in a wheelchair tomorrow, right? And not only does he let him walk, when he sees him starting to win, when he sees the cooler walk to his table and start to clean out his casino, he holds back all the dogs. No. This man is going to take that money and you're going to fucking let him. Yeah. And maybe that's not completely earned, but I fucking love it in the movie when yeah. it happens. It's a big surprise. You kind of don't expect that from Shelley. But he's, he's, uh, that's the other side of him being such an old school gangster, right? Yeah. A, a debt owed is a debt that I'm going to pay. You yeah. pay your debts. Yeah. He's a, he's a bit of a Lannister in that regard. Another interesting thing about this movie, there's a documentary called This Film Has Not Yet Been Raided, mm-hmm. which talks about movies that have been raped by the MPAA. Mm. Which this was movie, that movie kind of was. Was a rape victim? Was it forced R for something? There is a sex scene. And Did Nipple ruin this movie's rating? It was pubic hair. It was Maria oh. Bella's pubic hair. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> um, they have a fairly frank and honest, <laughs> fairly graphic sex scene. The first one is almost excruciating to watch because it's over so quickly and kind of humiliating <laughs> <laughs> for, for William H. Macy, but she's weirdly charmed by it. It's almost like she's taking his virginity. Yeah. He's not. He's a father. Father, as we find out through the movie, but like, but he's so overjoyed to have the tenderness of a woman back in his life. She's charmed by so, that very fact. It's yeah. so foreign to him that someone would be nice to him, even a little bit. Let alone he's this like an movie. abused dog. The way yeah. Shelley treats him, right? Yeah, but they have this whole fairly graphic sex scene. Like they have the unsuccessful sex scene, which I just described, and then we see them later on having progressed, where they're having really good sex, and they decided they were going to show that, and where's Nobody maybe wants to see William H. Macy's saggy white man ass, but they cut a significant portion of that in the movie. I don't know I don't know how much it hurt the and movie. And did it still earn the hard R rating? It got an R, but it didn't get an NC-17, oh, which would have killed it. Were buried it. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, it's and interesting. The, the movie had some talking points over that, and unfortunately, most of the times when it came up, that was the thing that was the discussion. And what gets missed is that I think it's a pretty fucking decent movie. I do have a complaint, though. What's that? <laughs> uh, again, I, I think I know what it is, but I won't just jump into it and spoil spoiler it. Spoiler tax. We already talked about the fact that William H. Macy plays the tables. His luck turns so completely that he wins. And I think that turn of fate and that win of Shelley letting him leave... And him being able to get in that car and drive away with Maria Bella... That's where our movie ends. ...was a satisfying ending. But instead, they give us one more scene. And it doesn't sink the ship for me entirely, but I genuinely wish it wasn't there. We have a one-scene role from M.C. Ganey, who's a consummate character actor. Fans of Lost will know him as one of the others. And he poses as a police officer to try and steal the money back and murder them. Yeah. And fate intervenes. A drunk driver smokes him. Yeah, he's pulled them over after they've been allowed to leave the casino with their winnings by Alec Baldwin, much to our surprise. Yeah. Uh, They're they're making what we think is a clean getaway. They get pulled over by a highway patrolman who's actually a gangster in disguise. uh, This guy you're talking about. M.C. Ganey, yeah. M.C. Ganey. But I just wish it wasn't there. It was just that one little step too far. totally Final Destination. Yeah. And it's... I don't understand what it's there for is my problem with it. They're... There must be a reason that the screenwriter has it in there. Yeah. But I can't for the life of me figure out what that reason would be. Can you? It doesn't top what happened before. It's not... The climax of the film has happened. It doesn't inform what happened. It doesn't change any of the characters' decisions. It doesn't... 
There's even a weird, almost embarrassed, like desperate cut at the end of the scene where he turns to William H. Macy turns to Maria Bell and says, "It's just some weird, freaky accident," and the film just cuts out like directly after his line, like, "Please don't think too deeply about this." It's almost like they're apologizing I for it like as it happens. Had a, like, not only was that should uh, the story end there, yes, but. Um, that, it's a good ending. It's not just where the movie should end. It, it, if it's it ended strong. there, it would be a strong ending. Yeah. I don't understand why anyone, whether it happened at the screenwriting stage or whether it was done later, like hastily they filmed some extra stuff on, on set, or what. I don't know why they were worried that their ending wasn't strong enough yeah. and that they needed, why the screenwriter felt he needed this extra yeah. scene. Unless he was trying to say something else, add something to it. I don't get it, right? Yeah. I know the stories about luck and how luck changes and and there's a supernatural element as we said at the beginning of this review to how William H. Macy's luck we, seems to be a we law live in a world of, of universe, magic. right? Yeah. It, it, it's legitimate that he has terrible luck for decades yeah. and that then one day it changes. It's not just statistical, it's every damn bet he makes. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, there's, no, there's no way to discredit it. It's just the, the odds of it being anything but perfect magic are infinitesimally small. It can't be anything else but magic. I want to quickly uh, mention two supporting roles uh, in the movie, which I like. I'm a big fan of Ron Livingston. Yeah. Uh, he was in, obviously... Watching him, this movie made me think, oh yeah, I wish Ron Livingston had sort stuff. of disappeared. He made this in Office Space and Swingers. And Band of Brothers is what Band I love him Brothers. for. Yeah. And, a lot of people are all know, about Office Space, and I like that movie, but I just love his character in Band of Brothers so much. Office Space is just where I first... Yeah. Well, no, Swingers is where Swingers I first is really noticed one, yeah. Ron Livingston, but Office Space is so hilarious. And it's sort of not your typical Ron Livingston role, right? He's he's a gangster, but he's not a heavy, but he has a lot of weight behind him. He might not be able to deal with Shelley one-on-one, but he can make a phone he call. He represents forces <laughs> who are far out of Shelley's league, the yeah. guys who own Shelley, right? He's the... I always like corporate when, face yeah. of gangsterdom. And I like it when they take a typically comic actor and give him a different role. And I think he did well enough with it. He gets his arm broken really brutally by Alec Baldwin in a bathroom. And I really like that scene. <laughs> because scene. as much as Alec Baldwin's not being smart, we really enjoy watching Ron Livingston <laughs> scream like a little child when his arm gets broken. <laughs> The other person I wanted to mention was Paul Sorvino. Yes. He plays this uh, singer who's been, you know, periodically coming in the club forever and ever and ever. And there's an interesting relationship between he and Alec Baldwin because what he's seeing, Alec Baldwin is seeing in this character is his future. This is a relic who no longer belongs to this world anymore. And Alec Baldwin tries to make it like it was for him and says that a girl left her underwear hanging on the the door of his dressing room and, you know... The old man sees right through it and says, "Just pay me with drugs. Yeah. I, I I don't want your pity. I just want I want the gear." And that is the thing too far for Alec Baldwin's character. He's like, "Well, once he knows that he's past his prime, the thing to do is to let him die with whatever dignity he has left." Yeah. And he gives him a bad batch and fucking kills the guy. And in Alec Baldwin's head, in Shelley's head, somehow he twists that into an act of compassion. It was a compassionate thing. And, it, and it's just such a cool thing. Paul Servino is actually a, a very good singer. And because you know him from, like, Law & Order and Goodfellas, you just don't expect this guy to be a crooner. And right. he is and legit. <laughs> Straight-up crooner, yeah. It's not a big role. He's not in the movie a lot, but I just wanted to give him a shout-out. And for these reasons and many others, I think, you know, it's a movie a lot of people missed. 
even though Alec Baldwin was nominated for Academy Award for it, a lot of people missed the cooler. And uh, mm-hmm. the other shout out in there is that Joey Fatone is in it. <laughs> Thank you. I would have fucking uh, lost sleep over it's Backstreet Fame or Insync. Which of those is Joey Fatone? I wish from? I could tell you. Joey Fatone is in there though. Yeah. Watch carefully when you watch the cooler. There's, like I said earlier, none of these movies are terrible. Some of them are better than others. The yeah. Cooler is one of the better movies in this group. I think it's a strong movie. Yeah, we'll. Uh, We'll get to it soon in the rankings. Watch the cooler, though. Agreed. I got this feeling. It's a weird feeling. The cabin starts to shake, right? And, and the, the left side blows up, and then the whole plane just explodes. The plane's gonna explode! It's not a joke! It's not a joke! We get thrown off the plane all because Browning has a bad dream? Sides. The plane! It's gonna blow up! It's gonna blow up! All 287 passengers are feared dead. Because of you, I'm still alive. In death, there are no accidents. No coincidences. Did it happen again? Did you see Todd die? What if it was our time? What if we were not meant to get off that plane? What if there is a design? Well, its premise is both its, its good and bad quality, right? Basically, what we're looking at here is a slasher movie without a slasher, right? Devin Sawa plays this teenager who's going on a school trip to Paris, and he has a vision that shows in grim detail a catastrophic accident on board the plane during takeoff, which kills everybody on board. He wakes up from this vision, flips out, and he and several of his friends are ejected from the plane, and the plane does indeed explode. And fate intervenes to slowly, one at a time, kill off the survivors. Because people who weren't supposed to survive. They weren't supposed to time it, survive. It was their time. Yep. And the problem with this intangible enemy is just that. How do you fight something that is invisible? How do you fight the power of fate you itself? You have to turn fate into a shadow so that you, the characters can glimpse it moving around. Unless, which they literally do. Unless it manifests itself as a Freddy Krueger fi- creature that says, I am fate or I am death, which I don't think we wanted either. Or, I'm scary Terry, bitch. Yeah, <laughs> but they paint themselves into a corner instantly here. Yes. Like, what's this epic showdown? What could it possibly be? And uh, I noticed in this movie uh, something that I don't remember seeing in any of the sequels, which just sort of increasingly turned into these, like, Rube Goldberg splatter fests, where it's all about, (laughs) how's this idiot going to die, right? Which is what slasher movies are, (laughs) but... But they just get increasingly complex and zany. It becomes zany in pretty short order. Like, I would say before the first movie is over, (laughs) they've already become inordinately complex, these disasters that befall the, the... Survivors. But the thing that gets you to watch these movies isn't how are they going to beat death. It's how are they going to die. Correct. Right? So it's not high art for that. No. And this movie has the, an element that I don't recognize in the other ones in that it seems like death was trying to cover its tracks. 
like making things look like a suicide, at least initially, mm-hmm. or you know, having people explode so the weird circumstances of their death are covered up. You know, the hardest thing for me to believe about the movie is that they figured out that they were being stalked by death because so... they shouldn't have survived the plane. Right? Like that—that's a stretch to be. And then the fact. I can believe a world where these people think that's what's happening. What's yeah. amazing to me is that they think it's happening and it's actually happening and that both of those things are true at the same time. I can kind of imagine it happening and them not realizing it. I can yeah. kind of imagine them thinking it's happening, but really it's just bad luck. I also so noticed... They figured it out, that yeah. they were being systematically hunted by it's the very Grim TV. Reaper itself. It's very TV. It is, and that will bring us back to Glenn Morgan and James Wong, who before this movie went into production, we're making a television show called Millennium. I had been working in television basically exclusively. He did a movie called The Boys Club a little bit before this, but... Okay. Uh, Which I haven't seen. It's Chris Penn hanging out with some kids in a treehouse. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, I, felt, I felt the influence of the both the structure of television writing... And there like, are commercial breaks in yeah, the movie. There's moments that feel like insert commercial here, and worse than that, there are scenes where they seem to need to recap the, yeah, the previous up episode. What happened Twenty minutes ago, just in case you forgot during the commercials. This is whose funeral it is, and this is why these two people have to have this conversation. Yeah. It feels the need to kind of constantly be reorienting us. I don't know if they were thinking because they're aiming at a teen date night audience that they needed to spoon feed us a little bit, but it felt TV, yeah, and it it it. it, it, it that's neither here nor there, I guess. I like watching television, but it's a movie, and they didn't make that leap completely successfully for me. Like, I f- It felt like a TV movie, and it wasn't. They didn't make the leap at all. They, they made a 90-minute television show, and it got projected on a big screen and was a big hit because of the gimmick of, of these kids being hunted by fate. It sort of And if it was a 44-minute... Version, like episode of X Files or Millennium, where that was the that's that what was, I wanted to be. And yeah. it probably even started as a Millennium script. I yeah. wouldn't be surprised if we a were spec to dig. script for X Files or Millennium that they just blew up into their first, their feature. Right, you know? they'd been working on X Files. We just looked it up as early as '93, yeah. and where they took over Millennium entirely for the second season, while Carter did the X Files movie and worked on went back to the X Files after starting Millennium. Made what. I think was a season of television that was two decades ahead of its time and was a commercial failure because there was no way for people to watch it. They didn't have Netflix yet and you couldn't miss an episode of the second season of Millennium and understand what the hell was going on. It was great TV, but it wasn't watched by enough people. Right, and uh, but we watched it. We watched the hell out of that show and maybe that's part of my uppityness about Final Destination. We know they're capable of better than this. Right. And so here I was sitting down to watch this movie that's sort of picking a scab off of the fact that one of my favorite television shows ever had its ending ripped away from it in many ways. And them leaving had nothing to do with why the show fell apart and didn't get any kind of satisfactory ending. I don't blame Morgan and Wong for that. But the stuff I knew them for before Final Destination was Millennium uh, space Above and Beyond, which I think deserves more love than it ever got. Uh, that kind of thing. And I, I can't name you anything they've done since. Well, that's where the sad story kind of continues. Because I'm cheering for these guys, too. Because I love that second season of Millennium, specifically, too. I, I can't go with you into season three. but No, I'm not a big fan, either. But I'm, um, only hold, I'm holding seasons two and three of Millennium in my hands. In my left hand, Millennium Season 2, because it's a great thing that I admire and love. 
season three because it represents everything wrong <laughs> with the way TV was made in the 90s, and it represents, you know, my right hand could be holding a much better thing in it if Final Destination didn't exist. exist. Yeah, And that's not a fair thing to hang on the movie as why I don't like it. Right. But I just I'd be lying if I wouldn't that say reality. Yeah. I would rather have them produce another season of Millennium than make this movie, and I know that, that the movie's not responsible for them leaving the show, but I feel like one could have existed and would have been better. Yeah, but unfortunately this went on to a high concept, but I think low quality Jet Li sci-fi picture, The One, and then two remakes, one of which I think is fairly strong, called Willard, with Crispin Glover and a bunch of rats, and one of which <laughs> I'm afraid to say is outright terrible, called Black Christmas. And as I far as I know... I didn't know Willard, because yeah. I liked Ben, Yeah. But and I just remember thinking Willard was weird. Well, it's, yeah, this is a remake, the one with Arlie Ermey and Crispin Glover. Yeah, anything the, the, with Crispin Glover in it ends up feeling <laughs> yeah. weird. But I, I, I have a soft spot for it, because of how weird it is, I guess. But I kind of want to be saying, you know, this is a, these guys were going to go on to greater things, but as it turns out, I think nope. that season two is going to be their high watermark uh, of Millennium, you know, and... Uh, I'm glad that they made Big Bank off of Final Destination. They had like the whole this whole series, and apparently they're gonna like reboot it somehow. In spite of the fact that it's just a slasher movie without a killer, it spawned a franchise. And as a fan of horror franchises, I am mystified mm -hmm. by the success of like I don't hate this movie, but I'm amazed that it spawned this whole fucking this whole series of sequels, and that it didn't spawn any huge careers. I mean, the movie's full of people that you expect in 1999. They were walking around thinking that. They were. This was going to be their big right. end to Hollywood, and then it was wildly successful, and then very few of them lasted more than another couple of movies after that. Yeah. Right, the main character, the main lead is uh, Devin, Devin Sawa, yeah. and he went on to do. You said Black Hawk Down. What else did we think he was yeah, in? I, that was the only one that I could remember off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah. I think he did it in the '90s. Before this, he did a semi-popular movie called Idle Hands. Yeah. Um, and they just, it feels like the casting call went out for most 90s kid ever yeah. for this movie, right? We need the 90s every kid. I think that they underweight the sort of gravity of the amount of death that they are subjected to at the beginning, too. People adjust pretty well to the plane crash. They're over the plane crash and worried about death stalking them in rather yeah. short order. It's like in between the imaginary commercial break. They lick their wounds. They figured it out. <laughs> put the pieces together. Um... But that's a, it's well enough made, and it's good for what it is, but it's like a total C movie. And if you're looking for a thriller to watch, I guarantee you, you can do better than Final Destination. That's right. But truth be told, you can do a lot worse. Well, when I wrote down my, my ranking at the beginning of this episode, and after we hit stop before we actually do the rankings, I'm going to take a look and make sure I still agree with it after our conversation. <laughs> uh, but I, I subjected this movie to the did it accomplish what it set out to do test. And I won't answer that question right now. Yeah. But yes, it's <laughs> so you will answer that question right exactly. now. Exactly. <laughs> uh, fate made me answer the question just then. Yeah. Uh, the, the movie more or less accomplishes what it set out to do. It didn't aim very high. Yeah. Uh, but I'd still rather have that second season of Millennium. I wouldn't stop anybody from watching Final Destination. I don't regret watching Final Destination. I had fun watching it with you. Yeah. Uh, but Final Destination is one of those movies that uh, if you have anything going on in your life, you can skip it. It's, yeah. It's the... 
It's not the closest this list comes to a bad movie necessarily, but it's going to come low in my rank. <laughs> As I've said before in the podcast, and this is like the faintest of praise, but if you were on a plane, <laughs> you know, and it was on, you know, it'll distract you for 90 yeah, minutes. Particularly the upsetting <laughs> plane crash sequence. Speaking of which, I think that might be the last really graphic uh plane breaking up in mid-flight sequence that we got before 9-11. Yeah, you might be was, right about that. That was late in 2000, I think, that movie came out. Like, was it a holiday thing? Was it? I can't remember. Where, <laughs> I don't remember when it was released in the year either, but but it was definitely 2000, yeah. and there seemed to be a number of plane crash movies that had really visceral, visceral, believable, upsetting plane crash sequences, and then yeah. that sort people, of... People, not just it explodes, people burning people alive. People getting people sucked, sucked out. out and yeah. yeah, and that is something that went away from movies for quite a while after 9-11. And credit where credit is due, it was well done in the movie, and it's a primal fear that everybody has. Like, I, I don't want to necessarily drive to Vancouver, but even though it's way more dangerous to drive to Vancouver than to fly, I feel safer in the car than I do in the I plane. also just, particularly driving to Vancouver. It's man, a beautiful driving ride. Driving through the mountains is such a beautiful drive, but yeah. I take your point. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, okay, watch it on a plane. I watched Waterworld <laughs> on a plane, and I'm still here and alive yeah. <laughs> somehow. So you can definitely get through Final yeah. Destination. And if you see what it was in this movie that made it spawn the franchise, please write me at Rank Review and let me know what you thought that was. Because uh, it surprises me. It's right up there with Children of the Corn and that, like... Why are there why are there nine children of the corn movies? You know, I, I just don't some understand. Idea of why, and and I think it might be we don't need to dwell on it for too long. But tell me what you think. The slasher genre kind of played itself out in right. the, in the late eighties, early nineties. It had begun to run out of steam, and we got a decade with few big slasher movies. Well, and the ones that were were winking. They were all scream, right? And this was sort of winking too because it was the slasher movie with the invisible slasher, right? Uh who we're not even sure if if there's really a willpower there or not or are they really just dying from bad luck and yeah. they're imagining the shadow they see skittering around. I don't know. Actually, the movie might be more interesting if it even asked that question. It doesn't. It doesn't. Death's just hunting them. Yeah. Maybe that's why it was successful, is people were, needed uh, needed to see blood again for the first time in a decade on the big screen. People were just ready to see some bodies get ripped apart. If you want to see Stifler get his head split in half, that'll give you that opportunity. Which I enjoyed, right? I, can't, like, it's just, I was licking my chops waiting for Stifler to die the whole time we were watching this movie. Uh, one more thing, and again, I don't want to make too such of a much out of Final Destination, but there is a pretty amusing one-scene role from the aforementioned Tony Todd. Yes. <laughs> He We're lays tying it on, things back together. He lays it on so fucking thick, but it is kind of delicious. And that's, that performance is part of why uh, it was just a couple days later that I watched Cube and thought, man, I wish Tony Todd was. I wish a young Tony Todd had been playing this character in Cube. Caveat for the third time, 
None of these are terrible movies. Decent list. I don't want anyone to think that I'm beating up on Alex Proyas again like <laughs> I did with iRobot. All right. But I have to put Knowing at number six on this list. So probably right off, right out of the gate, I'm I'm losing again on my fourth <laughs> visit to Rankin Review. I lose. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, spoilers. Number five is is uh, Final Destination. And right. The reason it beats Knowing is because it passes the did it set out what it Wanted did it accomplish do. what it set out to do. Yeah. And Final Destination did, and Knowing did not. Yeah. I'm not entirely certain what Knowing was setting out to do. I would have liked to see that movie, though. Yeah. Because I don't think it was quite this one. <laughs> uh, and you said a similar thing, right? Yeah. That the movie was just, it's, it was this shy it's one of, those of being something really movies. special. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. But it, it, it fell far short of very special for me. So, I put it at number six. It, I, I certainly liked it much more than I liked iRobot. But it wasn't half the movie Dark City was. Right. That being said, if somebody asked me which of these movies should I watch, I might say watch Knowing. There's more interesting thought processes going on in Knowing. It just doesn't succeed. Yeah. Filmatically, if that's even a word. <laughs> uh, but Final Destination is is uh, uh, empty calories for sure. Uh, knowing had some some meat to it, but it was. It was gamey. <laughs> Fair enough. It was no good anymore. Uh, number four goes to Cube. Um, why is Cube so low on the list? Cube is so low on the list because of those Other way movies. all over the place uh, performances. Yeah. Is what it is. Uh, I have a lot of love for Cube. It's not a diss that Cube's on the bottom half of this list. Yeah. Cube's one of the, the coolest, most imaginative Canadian movies you can find out there. And it's pretty astonishing that that a movie shot in two tiny little rooms can convince us that it's taking place in this enormous, cavernous, 500-foot-wide space full of 10,000 rooms. Seriously, a beer for everyone involved. Yeah, By all means. a whole round of beers, <laughs> even for the, the main guy, who yeah. really, he needs 12 beers. He needs to chill the fuck out and stop beating people. He was really at 11 the whole time. <laughs> He started at eleven and turned it up to thirteen yeah. for the for the scene where he, he assaults the girl. I'm given the cooler number three. Okay. Yeah, I'm given the cooler number three. I like the cooler. Uh, <clears throat> I like the cooler. Feels like a movie. I'm surprised I didn't see it at the time. It feels like a movie that came right out of a period of of time when. Well, we watched The Big Lebowski for your 40th birthday yep. just this, like, 24 Yesterday. hours ago yeah. from now. We were finishing it up in this very room. And, you know, sometimes there's a movie that just fits right in to this <laughs> time and place. The Cooler is, a, it just belongs right there in 2003. It yeah. feels like it was plucked right out of that time period. And not in a bad way, like, not in a, ooh, that's dated, that's an early 2000s movie. Yeah. I don't know, really what all to say about the cooler as far as it might have beaten live die repeat if i hadn't been so delightfully surprised by live die repeat right when i watched the cooler i got pretty much what i expected which was good it was it was a, a quality movie yeah. i would if you know on the ebert scale it would get three to you know three stars i'd say on the on the ebert four star scale he right. did four stars yeah. right in his tribute reviews but live die repeat uh, I went in 
I, I came out of live, die, repeat having been given much more than I walked in expecting. Right. And so I guess that influences my ranking. Maybe it shouldn't. Maybe The Cooler's a better movie. This is one of the two places where I struggled. I struggled with the bottom of the list. Where do I put Knowing and Final Destination? I struggled with Cooler and Live, Die, Repeat, or yeah. Edge of Tomorrow, whatever we're calling it. <laughs> Live, Die, Repeat, number two. Watch it. I think it's, other than Groundhog Day, my number one pick, Live, Die, Repeat, will please the broadest audience Spectrum, for sure. because it'll please you whether you want a bunch of explosions it will please you if you want to actually turn your brain on and pay attention to the movie on a level deeper than that right um, the only way the movie can really not entertain you I guess is if you just really can't stand Tom Cruise right which I suppose if, if I'm in the wrong mood I'm going to dislike a Tom Cruise movie just for him but uh but the day we watched Live, Die, Repeat, I was Tom Cruise friendly, yeah. apparently. It didn't bother me. <laughs> Groundhog Day uh, stands proudly atop this list. It's easily the number one movie on this list. I feel like, if on nothing else, you and I will agree <laughs> on that. I hereby predict, predict that Groundhog Day will be Larry's resounding number one as right. well. Everyone should see this movie. And most people have, by on, to be honest. But everyone should see this movie, and then everyone should see this movie a second time. This yeah. movie should be seen a couple of times. It is that incredibly rare, deep rom-com. Mm-hmm. Groundhog Day is the only movie on this list that I would... I would be seriously taken aback if someone told me they really hated Groundhog Day. Any other movie on this list, I'd be able to chalk it up to eh, wrong mood. Wrong but movie, how wrong do you day. hate Groundhog Day? It's, it's perfect. I think it's probably fair to call it a classic at this point. Mm -hmm. I think that's a fair thing to say. Yep. And I don't think there are any other classics on this list. So yes, we definitely agree. I, at the I top agree of there it. are no other classics. It's the only one. Yeah. Um, okay, well, before I tell you why you're wrong, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we, we, we started this whole epic uh, podcast that we're going to decide whether or not we have free will or whether or not Everything oh yeah, is I still have to answer that question. Uh, uh, and uh, after watching these movies and chewing this over, uh, have you come to a conclusion? Has cinema answered the great question? Could I answer this question by telling you that I choose not to answer it? Would that be proof of my free will? <laughs> I don't think it would. I don't think it would be. Short version is, no, I don't, I don't think we have free will. And, and that is coming from somebody who also does not believe in predestination and fate. Yeah. I am... Not a capital A atheist, but I'm I'm close. I like for me, it's just like another subgenre of the horror movies. Like I like monsters and I like ghosts, and I don't need to believe in them to be entertained by these movies. Right, right. right. I mean, I I uh, can quite enjoy sitting down and watching. I was going to say the Passion of the Christ, but I mean the Last Temptation of Christ yeah. without believing in Jeebus. Yeah. Like, I can watch The Descent without believing in underground can, monsters. Yeah, I can fear The Walking Dead or The Walking Dead, fantastic, without yeah. believing in zombies. It doesn't ha make it more frightening because it's quote-unquote true. And I can enjoy Groundhog Day without believing in Punxsutawney Phil. But consequently, it's not your fault that we disagree. You had no choice but to make the decisions that you made. Yeah. Uh, and if not for Groundhog's Day, dude... We would have gone zero for six. Really? <laughs> We're all mixed up. Um, look, I put Final Destination at the bottom of the list. It's not terrible. It's not at all memorable. There's just nothing amazing or exceptional. And I can't argue about with it. you because I almost put it there myself. But I think the the one that's going to piss you off is it, knowing which is number two. <laughs> no, it's yeah. not second place. Uh, 
But I, I put Cube all the way down in fifth place. That doesn't piss me off at all. I put it in number four. Yeah, but like, it's much like Knowing, which I'm about to talk about. It's a sci-fi movie that's got some loud and obvious flaws. Mm-hmm. But I love it for what it wants to be. You know, I love the ambition of the movie. I might even love it more than it's worth, but I do love Cube. But I'm not going to argue that it's a better movie than these others on the list. Squeaking in at number four is where I put Knowing. Where you put Knowing. And, uh, again, I love what it wants to be. I love the uh, ambition of it. I love isolated scenes in the movie. Mm -hmm. Genuinely surprising moments in the movie. When Rose Byrne gets smoked by that rig, uh, we didn't even mention her, I don't think, in the review, but... She's just like Nicolas Cage, another mom trying to find a way to save her daughter in an impossible situation. And her payoff is to get fucking creamed by a truck. Yeah, and right. I did not see that coming the first time I watched the movie. Did I didn't know where that story was going, but I certainly did not expect it to dead end in the way it did. So, you know, it surprised me. And, I, you know, if someone had fucking thrown some coffee in Nick Cage, you know, and made him care, I think we might have had something a little more special. So everyone I might be giving in, it more credit than it's worth, but I... <laughs> in my defense, everyone on screen, and I felt like everyone behind the camera in Cube felt like they really wanted to be yeah. there and cared about the project. So Cube has to at least beat that uh, on, beat it on that one note at the very least. It is might it? have more heart, but I'm going to argue that knowing might be slightly more interesting. Yeah. Heart uh, isn't everything. It's tough, though. I mean, like the, the middle of this list is hard to get super passionate about. Yep. In third place is Live, Die, Repeat. Mm-hmm. I guess the rest of the list is pretty self-explanatory. Yep. But yeah, uh, it over-exceeded my expectations uh, and on based on one viewing. And again, maybe if I watched it again, I would see more or less. But based on that one viewing... Absolutely worth checking out, and I haven't said that about a lot of Tom Cruise shoot 'em ups. Nope, uh, I still can't believe I did say it. Yeah, so uh, way to go, Doug Lyman. High concept sci fi thriller that works, and yeah. uh, we need more of those. Spent a lot of money, and it actually sort of worked anyway. <laughs> the cooler is kind of an original number. Yep. Like, as much as I have a problem with that last fucking scene, and again, if I had any kind of editorial notes, I'm just like, seriously, guys. Take out the last scene and put the sex back in the movie, and uh, I will be selling this to everybody I fucking know, right? Yep. But because there's no movie like it, because it highlights William H. Macy, who's typically a B player, it's nice to see him center a movie and do well at it, you mm-hmm. know? You know, he was he had Jerry Lendergaard and then basically supporting actor, supporting actor, supporting actor most of the time. Until right? Shameless, yeah. Yeah, so... I yeah. also enjoyed watching Bill Macy play a pathetic loser who doesn't lose yeah right in the he he wins in the end which he wins I really, huge which i really didn't see coming through most of the movie i just didn't see it coming even after he wins you don't see it coming the stakes are heavy like you believe he could take a bullet till yeah. the credits run like it could go either way it feels like and the the filmmakers were clearly trying to to play with that by giving us that that tacked on scene at the end which uh our lists would probably match on that top half if it weren't for that final scene in the cooler. Yeah. That final scene makes the difference for me with yeah. Live Die Repeat. There's no scene at the end of Live Die Repeat that makes me go, What what the hell is that doing in the movie? For me it's just like I can say that Live Die Repeat is sci fi groundhog's day, right? Mm. But I can't say that the cooler is a faint photocopy of any nothing else immediately jumps to my mind. The cooler No, is although the we came pretty close with uh, with a uh, Twilight Zone inside Hard Eight. Yeah, that's pretty much it. But still, what like, the hell does that mean? It's pretty amorphous, and it does 
Maybe more than any other movie. And it's an idea. Stand out. <laughs> it's yeah. a concept of a movie, not an actual movie, right? Yeah. So I appreciate what it's trying. And, you know, it's, it is a very supernatural movie, but it doesn't feel. It feels very real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> However, Groundhog's Day is operating on a whole fucking other level. <laughs> this was a list with Groundhog's Day and five other movies. Yep. Like, it's not any of their faults. It, just, it made like, the list one notch easier than it usually yeah. is. Because the, the other movies are in a different class. And look, I know we agreed on almost nothing, but we're still, it's margins, The list is all, nowhere is there a gap of more than one movie. Everything's yeah. just off by one notch. And honestly, even looking at the list, like when I was like, am I really, am I really putting Cube in fifth? I, uh, but, you know, because I, I do genuinely love the movie. Like, the only one that I could say you, you don't necessarily need to make time for is Final Destination. And even that, it's not bad. It's just, it's unexceptional. But I think if you like genre movies. Yep. These are good ones. If you're into movies enough to listen to this podcast all the way to the end and hear the <laughs> rankings, then you should see all of these movies. And if there's one you want to scratch off the list first, it should probably be Final Destination. Is it all set in stone? Is all of our choice just an illusion? Is there a path set before us, or or can we choose our destiny? And are those a lot of big cans of big worms to open up on a podcast? Yes, well, maybe, but I hope you enjoyed it anyway. Thank you for listening to episode 82 of Rankin Review. Please, if you'd like to send me feedback, you can do that by sending me messages at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Find the podcast on Facebook, find it on Stitcher, and do me a favor and tell that other movie nerd in your life that there's this podcast called Rankin Review, and it doesn't suck. I'll talk to you again soon.